Good morning, First Baptist of Hacienda Heights. It is my privilege to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Um, I'm Nam Park, I'm pastor of Emmanuel Bible Church, and uh, um, our church would send you guys greetings, and we're thankful for you. Uh, we have the privilege of knowing a couple of your pastors, and uh, we're thankful for those men and for the ministry that they do. And so um, it is uh, my distinct honor uh, to come and speak to you about the scriptures this morning. So if you turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk chapter 3, be looking at the, the last few verses of the book of Habakkuk, which summarizes Habakkuk's position of faith in the midst of troubled times. It is, it is about enduring faith and faith that is capable of taking on the difficulties of the current circumstances in Habakkuk's life. And I, and I think we'll see it not so much as we want to be like Habakkuk, but I think we'll connect with Habakkuk in such a way that we recognize that all men of faith, all women of faith, in all history, including times like today, in difficult times, times of unrest, times of difficult injustice, times of, uh, of social upheavals, as well as pandemic and sickness, disease and death and dangers all around us, regardless of what circumstances we find ourselves in, we find that what we need is not a human solution. What we need is not human hope. What we need is faith and faith in a God that is bigger and greater than us. So this is Habakkuk's conclusion uh, to the impending invasion of Babylon, um, to war and to not just war, but to utter defeat and, uh, and enslavement because of the war that is to come. His conclusion when all is said and when God has described all the details of everything that is to take place is in Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 16. Let me read that for you, and then I'll pray, and then we will look at um, what it means um, to have faith in troubled times. Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 16. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you um, this morning as we consider all the difficulties and the dread of the world that is unfolding around us. Father, a virus that has literally broken the world and has brought the world to a standstill. And, and then in the midst of those things, as we start to get a handle on how to how to care for our community and care for each other in the midst of a pandemic. Lord, we have then all of this civil unrest. We have injustice that has been played out on video. We, we have things that have distressed and hurt and injured us and, and, and broken, Lord, the, the fabric 
of uh, that, that fake veneer that says that everything is okay and that everything is good and righteous in this world. And Lord, we humble ourselves as we come before you and we look to the scriptures now. We humble ourselves and recognize, Lord, that we are often so convinced that we can handle everything on our own. But Lord, it takes things like this, pandemics. It takes things like like social unrest and injustice to remind us again of the pain of sin and the destructive nature of a broken world that only our God can rescue us from. So Lord, teach us what it means to trust in you in the most difficult and troubled of times. Teach us to look to you because you are our God and we look to no other. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I know we are talking about um, trusting in God and it's such an appropriate appropriate topic for us because we're trying to trust in God in the midst of, of some of like the convergence of so many crazy things, uh, the convergence of things like, like a pandemic, you know, six months ago, if you would have, if we would have been talking about ideas of, of, of the entire world being shut down because of disease, I would think you were out of your mind that that just couldn't happen. I mean, that, that isn't possible today, right? Like, like we are a, a, an advanced society capable of fighting anything and we're probably going to make it through anything. That, that's, that would have been my thought. And I would have been dead wrong. If we, we thought that just even, um, um, I don't know, about a month ago, um, before um, uh, more injustice against uh, those uh, of, uh, of African-American descent um, in our country, you know, uh, we could have lived in kind of the bliss of thinking that, you know, bad things don't happen, that there is no racism, there is no, there's no injustice, and that people aren't going to react to that in a way that could be dangerous or that could be, that could be you know, um, um, strong or powerful <clears throat> and disrupt order in our cities. Well, I would, again, I would be wrong. I mean, as the, all of these things unfold before us, as we look to the scriptures, we're reminded that, that we are those that might mourn, and we should mourn. We should mourn injustice. We, we, should, we should mourn those that have gotten sick and maybe friends and family members or, or individuals that we know that have actually passed away from COVID-19. We should mourn with those that mourn. We should lament the difficulties of our present circumstances. But as we do, we lament, we mourn, but not as those that are without hope. And hope is just a future forecasting of faith. In other words, hope is a function of faith. What we trust in determines who we look to, determines what we hope in, what we think might come. And that's, that's what faith is about. And there's no better place that I think that we could turn to than the, than the prophet Habakkuk to kind of explain that. It's about faith in troubled times. And as we look at Habakkuk, we begin here in verse 16, and Habakkuk describes what it means to fight for trust in a, in a sovereign and wise God. Because there are moments where life becomes broken, where everything that we trust in has fallen apart, where all the circumstances around us will teach us that, man, this is not going to work. That something is seriously wrong. If you have ever come to the end of yourself, and perhaps that's how you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you are a brother or sister in Christ, 
But if you've ever come to the end of the line and thought, man, this thing, these things cannot get worse, that's what Habakkuk, where Habakkuk is at. And he is in the midst of that trying to fight to trust in God's sovereignty and God's wisdom in his sovereign care for us. Verse 16, this is how it describes the struggle that he has against the disaster that is impending. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Now, listen, I, I need to, to give you a, a little bit of background so that we understand the real life um, disaster, the real life difficulty, calamity that is falling upon this prophet Habakkuk. And to do that, we need to look through the first parts of Habakkuk, and we'll be flipping back and forth a little bit. But in Habakkuk chapter 1, go back to the first chapter, starting in verse 2, Habakkuk has this Q&A with God, a question and answer session, a prayer session where he's asking very directly of the Lord, how can these injustices continue? And this is what he says. He says, O Lord, Habakkuk 1, this is Habakkuk 1 verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not say? Habakkuk is concerned because things are not good in the nation of Judah. This is the southern kingdom, Judah. The northern kingdom, Israel, has already been swept away into captivity. Um, perhaps at this point, um, it might have been um, several decades, but they're gone. They've been taken away by the Assyrians. They've been invaded, and their young have been taken away, and they're gone as a nation. The northern kingdom of Israel gone. Judah still remains. And Habakkuk, as a prophet, is crying out and saying, Lord, how long am I going to see violence around me? Does that sound familiar? How long am I going to see destruction take place? He says in verse 3, why do you make me see inequity, injustice, he says. And why do you idly look at wrong? He's saying, Lord, how can this all of this be, be wrong around us when we are supposed to be your people. He goes on in the second part of verse 3 of Habakkuk 1. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Listen to verse 4. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. This is Habakkuk. God's man recognizing that God's people in God's, God's country, they've gone amok. They've, they've just lost their minds, morally speaking. He is saying that the law's paralyzed, justice doesn't go forward, that everything's flipped upside down, and the wicked, they surround the righteous. Violence injustice, wickedness. I mean, isn't that exactly the time that we live in? And this is what Habakkuk is seeing. And he's saying, Lord, how long are you going to let the wickedness of Judah go unpunished? You've got to do something. You're a God that is righteous. In fact, he is going to affirm that God can't even look upon evil. So he knows that God must do something. He cannot tolerate the injustices that are rising up in the midst of, uh, of Israel, of Judah. Sorry. So what is God's response to Habakkuk's question? How long, O oh Lord, will you allow Judah to go unpunished for the injustice and wickedness? Well, we continue on in chapter 1, in verse 5 and 6. This is what God says. 
He says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. So God says, listen, Habakkuk, I'm, I'm not just going to do something. I'm going to do something that is going to blow your mind. Right? He says, I am doing a work in your days. You, you would not believe if I told you. It is a wonder. It will astound. And what is that thing that God is about to do? I mean, if I hear that part, if I just hear verse 5, I, and I'm Habakkuk, I'm thinking, yes, do something fantastic, Lord. Like, make, make it rain fireworks, like, right on top of, of everyone that is wicked so we can look at them and go, man, that guy's wicked, right? That, that it would be clear that every wicked thing is just exposed. That, Lord, make all justice happen. Make all things right. Do things in a manner that would cause individuals to be exposed. Do something miraculous, Lord. Put it all on videotape. Do something for us. But this is what he says. This is the wondrous thing that I'm about to do. Verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings that are not their own. God will go on to say that he's using the Chaldeans, which is um, another name for the Babylonians. And that the Babylonians are going to come and they will be the rod of God's justice on the nation of Judah. God doesn't disagree with Habakkuk's, right, with his estimation of his nation. Habakkuk is correct. There's injustice that is reigning. There, like, the, the idea of justice is flipped upside down. Everything is wrong. There's violence in the streets. There's evil and oppression. There's all kinds of stuff that is not right. And so Habakkuk is right to go to the Lord and ask him, when will these things be fixed? And God's answer, his solution is, is I know this is going to blow your mind, Habakkuk, but I'm going to use the Babylonians, a bitter and hasty nation, meaning that they are angry and they are fierce and they are quick right to war they will march through the breadth of the earth and seize dwellings that are not their own he is saying they are going to come and invade the nation of judah and take them away they are going to be his rod of judgment in 722 bc assyria swept away the northern kingdom and uh um over a hundred years later um, by the time we get to 568 BC, Nebuchadnezzar brings the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and takes away the nation of Judah and destroys the temple and destroys the city. So in light of this, having heard this prophecy, Habakkuk is understandably shaken. That's the coming. You go back to chapter 3, verse 16. He says, my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. You guys can relate to this, right? Unless you have been so pampered growing up that you have never faced anything that is either frightening or difficult, right? Maybe it's a roller coaster, you know? Some people don't like roller I love roller coasters until I hit about like 50, right? Which is like last year, right? Once I got 50 years old, I can't do a roller coaster. It's too fast. Like I come off and I'm like, I'm like kind of wobbly, right? And this is exactly what it's talking about. Or maybe for you, it's like public speaking. You get in front of people and you have to you have to say some announcements for church and you're just like, you know, and um, and your lips are quivering. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, that, that's what he's talking about. 
right? That there is sometimes this feeling of like emptiness where you just don't have any strength because you feel like this rottenness has entered your bones and you can't stand up straight. What, what is all of that about? It's the emotional, the physiological expression of the emotional distress. Like we are mentally distraught and the result of that is we feel like we're falling apart. That's exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about something that is real. And so when I say that there is a fight to trust in God's sovereignty, I mean it. I mean, he is literally struggling, not just with the disaster that is to come, but the knowledge that this is about to happen and all the wickedness that is in his nation will be punished by even more wickedness. It is his anxiety, his fear of, of disease, of death, of pandemics, of war. Things are not going to get better immediately. As far as he could see, God's solution seems not to be the solution at all that would give him a sense of security. And so he feels like, Lord, I am falling apart. And so he's saying, at the sound, when I heard everything that God would do, I am literally falling apart. My anxiety is overwhelming. And yet, he exemplifies what it means to trust God in the midst of the most troubling of circumstances. Because look at the rest of verse 16, right? The first part said, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. We understand that. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. We get that. And then he says this, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Now, this is remarkable. This, this, this is what faith in a God that is greater and that is wiser and that knows what he's doing. This is what that faith looks like. It looks like the, the, the capacity to trust that God knows what he's doing and I can wait. See, so go back to the back of chapter one again. Sorry, we're flipping so much. But the divine Q&A continues. Right, so Habakkuk says, Lord, how long are you going to let Judah get away with its wickedness? And God says, not long. I'm going to bring Babylonians, and this is going to blow your mind, but I'm going to bring Babylonians to punish them. And so Habakkuk's next follow-up question, understandably, in verse 13 of chapter 1 is this. Wait a minute, Lord. You are you who are purer of eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You understand what Habakkuk's saying? He's saying, wait a minute, Lord. How can a righteous God, a God that he says has eyes too pure to look at evil, cannot tolerate what is wrong? You can't idly you know, tolerate people that are traitors. You can't be silent when the wicked swallows up those that are more righteous than he. So how can you, O righteous God, punish wicked Judah with a nation more wicked than they? Lord, you're saying that your answer to my question of how long you will wait to punish the wickedness of Judah is that there's more coming, that it'll get worse, that a wicked, a more wicked nation will come and they will be the ones that will discipline this nation? God's answer to that really comes in chapter 2. 
And if I could summarize his answer to it, it's simply that God is going to repay wickedness in full. In other words, in chapter two, God gives five woes. Five woe, right? There's, okay, let me, let me, there, there are woes like, you know, like you're walking into a room and then something's about to fall on you and you kind of say, woo, right? That's the W-H-O-A woe. And then there are woes that are W-O-E. These are the troubles, the curses, the bad things that can happen to us. And this is, this is what we're talking about here. This is a woe. These are five woes that God gives in chapter four against that kind of injustice and that kind of sinfulness um, that, that has been taking place in the nation of Judah. And that is, is exemplified in the pagan nation of Babylon as well. Um, and I, I'm just going to summarize these, right? Um, but the first woe is against the greed, the greedy and the aggressive, um, you know, greediness of individuals. We can call them plunderers, right? And that's in verses five through eight of, uh, of, of Habakkuk 2. You know, people that come and they, they, they are aggressive and greedy and they come and get you. There, there are in the next section, right? The second woe is against the, those that seek evil gain and exploit people. These are the thieves, the scammers, the con artists, and, and, you know, and the violent usurpers of property. Plunderers, thieves, scammers. And the third woe is against violence and injustice. It's against people that, that, that do what is wrong, maybe even the in the name of justice, maybe even with the authority of the city or the state behind them. They do what is wrong, is violent, that is wicked, and they get away with it. I mean, these are the violent and just individuals. Fourth, woes against the drunkenness and immorality. In other words, against the shameless, those individuals that, that just revel in their earthly pleasures and they don't care about anything else. And they certainly don't want to hear from a God who says that they can't do what they want to do. It's against a woe against those that are just party animals and shameless about their pursuit and desire to just be left alone to enjoy whatever they want to enjoy. And then fifthly, a woe against all those that trust in idols all those that trust in idols, all those that would trust in things that are not God. Now, now let, me, let me say something so that we, we are clear about what we're talking about. God says, right, that, that, that there are five woes against these different kind of groups to say that no one is getting away with anything. See, that's the point. God's point is that whether we're talking about, right, swindlers, whether we're talking about plunderers, whether we're talking about violent usurpers, we're talking about injustice, Right. Um, and people that come in the name of justice and give violence, whether we're talking about shamelessness, idolaters, regardless of what we're talking about, the God's point is that no one gets away with anything before an all-knowing and all-righteous God. God's justice is perfect. So if he is going to use even wicked men to accomplish justice at some point, even those that bring that justice, they will, they will be served justice as well. No one gets away with anything. See, but in the midst of that, what God wants Habakkuk to understand, if you look carefully at Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, and it's an important one. He says, he says it, well, he says it, let's look back to verse 2, chapter 2. No, let's, 
Let's just read from verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, I will take my stand at my watch post, this is Habakkuk, station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. I want to know what his answer is. How can you, right, who are a righteous God, you punish Judah, who is wicked, but punish them with a nation that is more wicked than them, and to punish them with war, to punish them with, with exile, to punish them with captivity, to punish them with, with just extreme difficulty. And he says, I'll look out to see what he'll say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And this is God's answer, starting in verse 2 of chapter 2. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. God says, number one, I'm telling you exactly what I'm doing. But number two, not only is he telling him exactly what he's doing, he's telling him what, is, what God is about to do and says, write it down. This is going to happen for certain. Write it down. Write down the vision. And he says this, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to its end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So write it down because it's certain to come. And then verse 4, which is a verse that is quoted in the New Testament on several occasions, particularly in the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, and in the book of Hebrews. Behold, this is God saying, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. He says a couple of things that, that we ought to pick up on that is so necessary for us to say, if we're going to fight, if we're going to fight to trust in the Lord and that he is sovereign, that he is wise in all of this, that he is wise, sovereign, righteous, and just in all the things that we see, if we're going to fight to trust in God, Right? One of the things that the Lord says is, is the, 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 the characteristic of those that walk righteously are that they live by faith. So on the one hand, it is to say that all those that are righteous, that have been declared righteous by God, are declared righteous by God by faith. So that's the same in the Old Testament as is in the New. That's the argument of both Galatians and Romans, right? That the righteous live by faith. They are not righteous because they are righteous. It is, a, it is very true that Habakkuk, as a godly of a, of a prophet as he is, as good of a man as he might be, he's still a sinner, lost, condemned, deserving of eternal destruction, just like you and I are. We're still sinners. We're, we might be decent sinners. We might think, ourselves, well, I, you know, I'm not going out killing people. I'm not doing bad things. That, that seems to be our go-to card, Right? When you talk to, to, to unbelievers about the gospel, or maybe you yourself, when someone's approached you about the gospel, maybe one of the first things that you said is, well, I'm not a mass murderer. I'm not Hitler. Our go-to is that I'm not as bad as that guy. That may be true. But compared to the perfect righteousness of God, his perfect purity, his glorious holy nature, we have all sinned and fall short. We, we are all condemned. But God's point is that those that have been declared righteous by him have been declared righteous because of faith. And that if that's the case, if it's the case for you and me that we have placed our faith, our faith, our trust, our dependence upon Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us, then if we have placed our faith in him, then, the, then God has declared us righteous by his righteousness. So we are, we are the righteous not because we deserve it, but because God has been gracious to us in the person of Christ. 
And if we place our faith in him, then not only are we the righteous, but then in every calamity, every difficulty, every hardship that we face in this life, we still live by that same faith. That's his point. The righteous shall live by his faith. The, 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 the first part of verse 4 is, behold, his soul is puffed up. The proud, meaning the Babylonians, but could be easily applied to the Judeans and could easily be applied even to Habakkuk. That all those that would trust in themselves, that would be the proud, right? That those that, that whose soul is puffed up, they think that they could fix this on their own. They're upright within themselves. God is saying you aren't upright. But the ones that have been declared righteous by faith in him, they continue to live by that same faith. So when we're fighting for faith, when we're fighting to trust the Lord, when we don't understand what is going on, we come back to who God is, what he is, and what he has done. God in chapter 2 is saying, listen, Habakkuk, those that have been granted righteousness because they trust in the living God, they must continue to trust in the living God so that we are not just trusting in God, for our initial entry into salvation, but we're trusting in God for everything from now until the moment that he makes all things right. He is saying we are to walk by faith, to hope in God, to place our trust in him. And he begins in, in, in the midst of Habakkuk's lament, he begins by encouraging him to understand that number one, no one gets away with sin. It might feel like that sometimes. That the unrighteous are taking over. That wickedness is just so prevalent that there is no hope for us. Especially if we want to play by the rules. Especially if we want to do things right according to God. And God is reminding Habakkuk and all of us for all generations. No one gets away with their sin because the Lord sees. The greedy, right? the, 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 the thieves, the, the plunderers, the extorters right? The shameless, they, they all will recognize true justice because God himself will mete out justice. It's true. Habakkuk's correct. God cannot look upon evil without doing something about it. His holiness is such that he is always holy, he is always righteous, and he must do something about it. So what, what, is the, what do we do when we feel that anxiety, when our knees are buckling and we have nothing left in the tank? How do we trust in the Lord? Well, we begin by re remembering that our God is not just sovereign, but he's a righteous and sovereign God, that he is a just God, that he is not allowing calamity and sin and brokenness to tear us away from him. So there must be then a transition, a transition of faith. A faith that waits to a faith that rejoices. He says, how, Lord, how can this be? And God says, God says, you need to wait. I will do what I will do. That last point, I think is particularly interesting, right? Um, that the last woe out of the five is woe against those that trust in idols. And, um, and I love how the prophets in the Old Testament remind us of the folly of worshiping and trusting in things um, 
that are just handmade, that are human made. Like how, how, how folly and how foolish that is, right? To trust in idols, things that are not God. Um, it's the idea that we would carve a piece of wood and then we would bow down to it. Can you imagine that? Can, can you imagine if I did that? If I carved a piece of wood and I decided to call it like, you know, I don't know, Nam, right? And then I decide I'm going to worship Nam. I'm going to, you know, put him on my kitchen counter and bow down to him. I'm going to be thankful for him, for all the good things that he gives me. I'm going to sacrifice him. And when I'm in trouble, when I feel calamity, I'm going to say, Nam, would you rescue me? Would you rescue me? And what God is saying is that is, that is imbecilic. That, that's ridiculous. Like, like we look to a thing that we have crafted for our hope when there's the God of this universe. Do you realize part of calamity, part of disease, part of the unsettling of our normal and secure lives is so that we are reminded that there is a God and he's not us. That there is a God and that God doesn't bow to us, but that we should bow to him. And so Habakkuk in 2.20, in chapter 2, verse 20, this is what the Lord says. He says, but the Lord, he says, Yahweh is in his holy temple. God is enthroned is the point. And he says, and let all the earth keep silence before him. The idea is, man, let the world and all idolaters and all those that would question God, let them shut their mouth. Let them keep silence before him. Why? Because they have no right to speak. There is only one sovereign. And he is not just sovereign. He is just. And he's not just just and sovereign. He is loving and gracious and good. And when you take all that together to be reminded that God is not finished with the wicked, we're to find faith settled in the fact that God ultimately deals out righteousness, deals out justice as he sees fit, because that's his job, not mine. So in verse 16, it says, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And so by the time we get to the conclusion, Habakkuk is saying, see, this is where my faith, my fight for faith has ended, right? It began with me saying that, man, I I am falling apart. I don't know how to handle this. And in the midst of even struggling still to handle this, I will recognize that I will wait on God. I will wait quietly for him. The idea of waiting quietly, it, uh, um, according to you know, one Old Testament scholar, it signifies not just the absence of movement, but being settled in a particular place. And this could be concrete or abstract, but it has overtones of finality. And when we speak about um, um, abstractly being quiet, like he's talking about here, being quiet, quietly waiting, it has overtones of victory, of salvation of waiting and trusting on another. And that's the point. Like a small child waiting on his father to pick him up because it's getting dark and the rain is coming, right? And to trust that God, that, that his father will come and rescue him. I almost said, God, our father. But that's the same idea. It's that, that, that we are waiting quietly for the Lord. In other words, wait, does that mean though, let, let me say this, does that mean though that we don't do anything, that we don't say anything? No, it means we do whatever. I imagine Habakkuk heard this. He wrote it down. He told people and said, this is the judgment that is to come. We need to do something about this. We need to seek the Lord, right? We need to, we need to honor God. We need to get ready for invasion. He probably gave all of that. 
But with all of that being said, with all that he might do for the sake of others, he chose to be settled on waiting quietly upon the Lord. It means that he struggled with the rightness of what is happening. But when all is said and done, he will come back to the Lord and will trust in his justice, will trust in his goodness. Faith waits upon God, believing him to be the only true determiner of our future. There's no accidental breakout of of a pandemic. There's no accidental um, acts of injustice and a rising up of a people against it. And then sometimes individuals acting wickedly in the midst of that that, that uprising or that um, that. Um, protesting. I mean, all the stuff that is taking place is not is out of control in terms of a human sense, in terms of a human authority sense, but God is still enthroned. He still knows what he is doing. And yes, he is sovereign, he is righteous, and he is good. And it may be a struggle for us sometimes, but the call of, of faith is to wait upon God, to believe that he is in control. And if we wait like that, it is, a settled, it is a settled position of victory. You know, um, in Isaiah 40, verse 28, the scriptures talk about knowing who God is and understanding that he is unsearchable. Verse 28 of Isaiah 40 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. So he's powerful. His understanding is unsearchable, meaning that he's inscrutable. Like we, we don't always understand with wisdom exactly what he's doing when he's doing it. He goes on to say, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. So the individuals that are falling apart for their anxiety, he encourages and helps them. And in verse 30, even youths, even young people, young men and women shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted But they who wait for the Lord, you you see that same refrain, they who wait for the Lord? Faith is sometimes a position of just trusting in the Lord and waiting to see what he does. And it may not even come in my lifetime, but it is trusting that God knows that he cares and he can and that he will. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Why should we wait by faith in the Lord? Because it becomes our strength. This is, they will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. We find our strength through faith in Christ, through faith in God. And we choose to choose God despite the circumstances and despite our uncertainties of what in the world is going on. That waiting on him results in a trust, a rest that lets us know that God is still in control. And that's the basis of strength. Let's say you want to do something. Let's say you want to do something about social injustice and you're thinking about how to do that. You don't begin from the position of anger. Anger is righteous. Um, As image bearers, we get angry because um, wickedness happens and that natural instinct is, is built into us, into our conscience, into our moral fiber, And so we naturally get angry. What do we do with that anger? How how do we respond in that anger is the question. And and anger is not the beginning. It might be the starting point in the sense that that's what triggers it. But then 
What do people of faith do? And the first thing that they must do is they must come to the Lord. They must cry out and, regular, and, and recognize that, that all of this is beyond my control, Lord, that this is not okay, that, that, that something must take place. But then as they do that, they enter into a place not of resignation, but of rest. And by placing their, their, their faith in God, who is above all things, it is the right place to begin to speak to everything else. It's the right place to begin to make a difference in the world around us. Because whatever we offer, we offer in the name of the Lord and by his power. And we find great contentment and strength because we have trusted and waited upon him. Resting by faith on the character and the purposes and the wisdom of God gives us strength to make a difference, even if it's temporary. Because that is what faith provides us. Come back to Isaiah, I mean to, to Habakkuk 3 and verse 17, and we get to the second movement, I think. So it's been about a fight, right? About the struggle and about a fight for faith, about fighting to trust in the Lord in difficult times, fighting to trust in God's sovereignty and his wisdom. And then in verse 17, then in verse 18, we get to the point where we see then that transition from that fight to that rest and finally to that rejoicing. So we are to fight for faith to trust in God's sovereign wisdom. Then we are to choose to rejoice in God's salvation. Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, no fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. It begins with the plight of barren shelves. The surrounding circumstances will become increasingly more, increasingly meaning more, right? It will become increasingly unbearable. This is the reality of what is about to take place. They're about to be invaded, and things are going to get terrible. Verse 17, let's walk through this a little bit. I think, I think that Habakkuk means to kind of build in this poetic way, things get worse and worse. He says there'll be no figs, right? They're not going to blossom. There's no fruit on the vine. So figs and grapes will be gone. Figs have always been a luxury item. I like figs. I don't know if you like figs. My family doesn't like figs. They found out that like hornets or something go inside and then this might be urban legend, but they go inside and then I think their carcasses are left inside there. That's how it's pollinated. I don't know if that's true, but they are kind of crunchy, but they're delicious. I love figs, right? But figs have always been a luxury item, whereas grapes, the fruit of the vine, have been the primary source of drinkable liquid. And so they make wine and then water down the wine. And that's that was the primary thing that they would drink, right? So when you take both of those, you go from the luxury thing you know, I, I want to eat mangosteens. If you don't know what mangosteens are, they're, they're, exotic. They're, they're exotic to us in the U.S. But in um, um, the Pacific, um, actually, I, I, don't, I don't really know which area they're growing in. Somewhere in the tropical Pacific, right? Um, they are plentiful and they're good. I, when I traveled, I, I've got a chance to eat them. They're, they're delicious. But they cost like a lot here. And so that would be a luxury item. I haven't bought mangosteen in the United States ever, right? But... The fruit on the vine is something that you need. It's a staple. It's part of your drink. It's part of the normal things that we would drink. It goes on. How about the produce of the olive failing? 
or the yields producing no, no food. Well, the fields producing no food, I mean, that makes sense, right? There's no wheat, there's no bread, there's nothing to eat. You need the fields to produce food. But how about olives? Olives are not just about eating. Yeah, they ate them. But the main thing that the olive gave to them, to, to the nation of, is, uh, of Judah, back in that period of time, was the oil, because the oil is what you use to burn. And you burn that oil for fire, for light, It'd be like saying, what if utility was cut off? For some of you, it's like saying, man, what if, what if uh, you know, the cell phone towers broke or the internet were gone? And you'd be like, ah, Lord, now, now everything's really falling apart, right? Like, so, so you're going from luxury down to necessity, to helpful utilities, to food. That's serious. And then it goes on to say, and the flock are cut off from the fold. So now you're talking about your regular staple of meat, but also milk. That's where you would get from your sheep, from your flock. And it goes on to say, and there'd be no herd in the stalls. Now, when he says no herd in the stalls, it's probably talking about oxen and your beasts of burden. It suggests that there is no possibility of plowing for next year's harvest. Your future is gone. Your, your job is gone. Your, your hope for whatever it might come. You're talking about the plight of barren shelves and barren futures. This is what he sees. And then verse 18, another faithful yet. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk is resolved to rejoice in Yahweh despite all the surrounding turmoil. I want to say a couple of things. One, you need to understand something about what scripture says when it's speaking to the idea of rejoicing. It is not saying that this is an emotion that you've got to generate. It is saying it's a choice that you make. That the faithful choose to rejoice in God. The, the, the righteous walk by faith. And one of the expressions of walking by faith and trusting in God is that we choose to rejoice. Habakkuk is on the one hand in the same breath saying that, man, my legs are quivering. I mean, my lips are quivering. My legs are falling apart from under me. I'm losing strength because I'm so distressed, yet... I will rejoice in God. I will choose to cast joy upon who God is. Why? Because he knows who God is. He trusts in the living God. And it goes on not just to say that he trusts or rejoiced in God. He says, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He knows where true salvation lies. It's not my rescue from my difficult circumstances. That, that might be a momentary help. It's not, it's not rescue from my government, right? It's not rescue from all the things that surround me. It, it, is, it is hope in a God who can deliver me either from these circumstances or through these circumstances or in spite of these circumstances. Eternally rescue my soul. God is a God of my salvation. So I rejoice in that. Doesn't it come back for us to the gospel of remembering who God is and what he's done for us? That despite our sinfulness and our undeserving, God has sent his own son to take our place in judgment. And that if we would believe upon him, that we might have eternal, that we might be eternally rescued, we might have eternal life in Jesus Christ. That kind of hope, that kind of security, that's forever. And so 
for the believer, for the child of God, for the one that's placed their faith in Jesus Christ, no matter what happens, this is the worst that can that we will experience in all of eternity. No matter how bad things get, it's the worst. No matter how good things get in this life, that is still the lowest, right? Of every good thing that we will experience for all of eternity. And so, so hope is about looking forward by faith that God will do what he's always intended to do. Rescue us, save us, and give to us eternal life. So this is a back of praising God. Earlier in chapter 3, Habakkuk's already taking this course. He, he praises God for his splendor in verse 3 of chapter 3. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth, and the earth is full of his praises. He praises God for his power in verses 4 through 12. For example, in verse 6 of chapter 3, he says that God stood and measured the earth. He looked and he shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. And so he's remembering who God is. So in the midst of his panic, he's saying, wait a minute, hold on. Who is God? And he's remembering that God's splendor is everywhere, that his power and his dignity and his glory is immeasurable. I love that phrase. He looked and the nation shook. It's like God is walking and he goes, what? And then the nations are like, oh, right? He looks and the nations are shook. His splendor, his power, his vindication. Chapter 3, verse 13, he says this. You crush, you crush the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Crush the head of the house of the wicked. This reminds me of uh, Genesis 3, when um, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And the idea simply being that God goes out for the salvation of his people Oh, I, sorry, I didn't even read that first part of verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, right? You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. And so, so yes, in the immediate, God is saying, right? And, and Habakkuk is affirming that God saves his people and will eventually save his people and his anointed, those that he has anointed or, or, or that he has elected, he will save them. From, by crushing the head of the wicked. And so, yes, in, in this present circumstance, Babylon will be punished. That's his point. But in a future sense, in a greater sense, the head of the serpent will be crushed. Our salvation and the salvation of his anointed, that will be certain because of the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ, his son. Yet I will rejoice, coming back to verse 18 in chapter 3. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. See, rejoicing is not an emotion, it's a choice. Rejoicing is about giving thanks and choosing to praise God, even when circumstances make it difficult. Rejoicing is looking to the Lord and trusting in Him and acknowledging his greatness despite our tears and through our difficult pains is not to say that we are not to lament or to hurt. We, it's okay. But to look to the Lord who is God and to find reason for joy, not because of us, but because of him. So it's a fight for faith that we're talking about. It's a choosing to rejoice in God that we're talking about. And here's the final thing, and I better make it quick because uh, this is, longer than the original message was meant to be. <laughs> Verse 19. 
live relying on God's sufficiency. It says, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Let me explain first the, the illustration. He says, he makes my feet like the deer's. I like some of the older translations that say he makes my feet um, um, like Heinz feet. And then it, like I, when, I, when I used to read that, like in my old NASB, like Heinz feet, I thought it meant hind feet. Like, you know, like I got hind feet, I got four legs in my hind. No, it's Heinz feet. And a hind, right, is a female, is a female, female mountain goat. Okay, I'm a little bit iffy on that, right? But it's a certain kind of animal that is comfortable in sheer heights. Sheer meaning that on cliffs, on the edges of things. There are mountain goats that are like, no big deal. Like, you know, like it's sheer cliff, but there's a little bit of outcropping. And so, you know, it just needs a couple of inches of sure footing and it's fine. It's stable. It, he feels fine. He's, he's not, he's not shaken by the height and by the, the difficulty of what is, 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 you know, the, the, the terrors that surround him. And so his feet, God is, so uh, uh, Habakkuk is saying, God makes my feet like the hinds feet, like, like the feet of these mountain goats. He makes me tread on high places. I'm getting to the place that I'm supposed to get there. I'm getting to the summit despite the treacherous nature of the terrain around me. That's his illustration. But the reason or the how that is possible is because God, the Lord, is my strength. God is enough. He is not just strong. He could have said that, right? I mean, he is saying that. He's saying that the Lord, right, that God is the Lord, that he is sovereign, that he is in control. He is powerful. True. He's saying that, but he's saying, God, the Lord, he is my strength. See, the more we lean in on ourselves for salvation, security, for hope, the more we fall apart. The more we lean in on God and find him to be sufficient, we find that he is more than sufficient. We find that he is a source of rejoicing. We find that by faith we can live in difficult, perilous times, in prosperous and good times. But in all times, we can believe in the God of our salvation because regardless of what troubled times, faith in him equals hope, a hope that cannot fade or be taken away. Why? Because what we're trusting in is a God who is sovereign who is loving, and who is good. How do we know that he is loving and good, even if we accept that he's sovereign? Because he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for my sins. I can't say I understand everything about anything that is happening in your particular lives, but I can tell you this. The evidence of God's love is that his own son came and took your sins upon him in the cross. And if you have trust in that, if you'll put faith in that, if you will be a follower of Jesus Christ and put away your sin and say, Lord, I acknowledge my sin and I want to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you have this faith. Not faith in yourself. Not faith that you generate. Not an energy that you create. But you have faith in a God who does rescue desires to rescue and that cares for us and is in perfect control of all things. This is what faith in troubled times means. It means looking to a God and believing that he is good, that he is sovereign, but that he is 
He is righteous, true, and loving. And again, righteousness and love of God, they intersect at the cross of Jesus Christ. So we look to him, our God and our Savior, for hope in perilous times. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word. And um, Father, I know it's a little bit difficult to try to, to, to preach into, uh, um, into a, a, a no-audience kind of um, cybersphere here, but we pray for those that might hear this. And despite the, 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 the roughness of the message, that uh, the message of what it means to truly trust in you would come through. Lord, we do pray for our world. We pray for healing. We pray for um, justice. We pray for, um, um, for, for your graciousness even to unbelieving peoples, Lord, uh, to shine through. But in, in our waiting, in our patience, Lord, in our activity, in the things that we do as we wait upon you to finally enact justice and perfect love, we pray that you will help us to walk by faith, to rejoice in you, to rest in you, to find you to be sufficient for all things. And I pray for our, our friends, our brothers and sisters and at the First Baptist Hacienda, we pray that you would uh, bless them to know and to honor you and that this troubling times would increase their faith and their willingness to depend upon you, to worship and rejoice in you, and to find that Jesus Christ is the most wondrous gift that we have ever received and to find that to be their foundation for all things. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.